Good morning. My name is Summer Hoppler, and I serve on the music ministry here at church. So if you wouldn't mind standing with me, I'm going to read our scripture for today, and it's from John 1, 19 through 28. This is the testimony of John the Baptist. It actually says that again. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Summer. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. I hope you're having a good weekend so far. Um, this morning, we're going to continue in our series called uh, Christmas According to John. Uh, as you just saw, though, our, Christmas pa or our passage today really has nothing to do with Christmas, so uh, maybe show me some grace in that today. But uh, we are going to be looking at John 1. And for the last two weeks, both Rich and Chris have shown a video as part of their message. And so I thought I would continue the trend. And so to start things here, let's go ahead and see, uh, see this video. Now as the video is playing, I'm going to talk over and explain what exactly is happening. The guy you see uh, playing here, uh, beginning to play the violin, is a world-renowned violinist by the name of Joshua Bell. He was considered a child prodigy, and he began playing the violin at age four. He's played some of the most famous pieces and some of the most famous places and venues in the world in front of kings and presidents and dignitaries. The violin he's playing here was made in 1713 by the Italian violin maker Antonio Stradivari, and it cost well over $3 million. Tickets to Bell's concerts typically go anywhere from $100 to $300 per seat, and yet here he is in 2007 as part of an experiment put on by the Washington Post wearing casual clothes and a baseball cap playing in the entrance of a busy metro station in Washington, D.C. during a morning rush hour commute. And as you can see, almost no one is paying attention to him. Now, clearly, the video has been sped up, but actually, Bell played for around 45 minutes straight, and over 1,000 people passed by him that morning, and in the end, only seven people stopped and watched for any length of time. Uh, in preparing for this, the people at the Washington Post putting on the experiment, they uh, tried to think through all the potential problems that could occur. And in doing so, they thought about something like crowd control. And the reason for that is because they assumed 
in a place as sophisticated as D.C. that surely many, many people would recognize Bell and soon people would gather around him and they would take pictures and text their friends and before long, hundreds and hundreds of people would show up at the metro station and it would get jammed and all kinds of problems would occur. And yet in the end, only seven people stopped and in that only one person recognized him and you can see her here in the video. She's holding that white bag standing just in front of him and after he's done, she's going to walk up to him and say, I just saw you at the Library of Congress. It was fantastic. And then she says, this is one of those things that could only happen in D.C. Now, the Washington uh, Post had a long article that went along with the video. It was kind of a wrap-up of, of the experiment. And in that article, the lady who you saw there with the white bag, she went on to say this. Joshua Bell was standing there playing at rush hour, and people were not stopping, not even looking, and some were flipping quarters at him. Quarters! <laughs> I, I wouldn't do that to anybody, and I was thinking, oh my gosh, what kind of city do I live in that this could happen? Now, I don't know about you, but I, I think this is a fascinating story and a fascinating video, I mean, here is one of the world's best and most renowned violinists playing some of the most difficult pieces and beautiful pieces ever written. And he's standing in the middle of a metro train station and out of a thousand people, only one person recognizes who he is. Only one person recognizes the greatness and that, that they are witnessing and the significance of the moment that they're in. And in the same way, Jesus Christ, he slipped into our world in the incarnation in such a humble and unassuming way that many, in fact, the majority of people did not recognize him. And instead, they kept on walking past, moving along with their busy lives, ignoring him in the process. However, though, as we uh, turn to the Gospels, and particularly at the beginning of the Gospels, what we find out is that there were a few witnesses. There were a few individuals who got it, who recognized who Jesus was and the significance of his coming. And not only did they recognize those things, but they were willing to speak up and to testify to his greatness. And the chief witness or the chief person who gave testimony to Jesus from his earliest days, including being in the womb of his mother, was a man by the name of John the Baptist. You see, in our story today, we're going to see that John the Baptist recognized Jesus. He understood his greatness and his glory, and therefore, it gave him a kind of boldness and a courage to testify and to tell others. But before we jump into this, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Well, Father, thank you that you did send your son, Jesus. And Lord, as we move into this week leading up to Christmas, Lord, I do pray that you would give all of us, that we wouldn't be like those people in the metro station, just ignoring and walking past, Lord, but you would give us little moments of grace every day, to turn our affection, to turn our attention to you, to recognize your worth, your worthiness, and to worship you in the process. And so, Father, I pray you would open the scriptures to us this morning, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so an outline for this morning just to guide us will be four simple questions. Uh, what was John's view of himself? What was John's view of Jesus? How did those views impact or inform John's life? And then finally, we'll try to do some application and ask, what can we learn from this? And so the first question here we want to look at is, what was John's view of himself? Well, look again at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Okay, so uh, one of the confusing things that we need to deal with here is the fact that there are two Johns. There's the disciple John who was a fisherman and had a brother named James and is the guy that is writing this book here, the Gospel of John. He's, he's the author. However, though, as most of you know, there was another guy named John who has already been mentioned several times in this opening chapter. And that is, uh, and this John is a relative of Jesus. His dad was a priest named Zachariah. His mom uh, was named Elizabeth. And he was kind of a strange and interesting person. He dressed weird. He ate weird food. And all of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, refer to him as John the Baptist. Now, they refer to him as that not because he loves suits and fried chicken and potlucks and Wednesday night church, <laughs> but because that's what he came to do. He is John the Baptist or John the baptizer. Now, I grew up Baptist, so I feel like I can poke fun of them because those are my people. Plus, I too love fried chicken. Um, but again, that's not why he's called John the Baptist. And the reason I bring it up is because it can be confusing. And the other gospel writers do add that, uh, that, that differentiation with the Baptist. But here in the gospel of John, he's simply called John. And so there's two Johns. But in relation to this question, in this section of the gospel that we're in this morning, we are talking about the second John, John the Baptist. And what we see here in verse 19 is that uh, the religious leaders of Jerusalem have taken notice of John. He's, he, they, he, he's gotten on their radar. He's caught their attention. And they have some growing concerns about him and about his ministry. In fact, this is uh, basically right at the height of John's popularity and influence. We're told in Mark 1, 5 about John and about his ministry that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. In other words, John the Baptist during this time, he was the leading religious figure in Israel. He was the one that was causing the stir and was exerting the most influence on the people. And yet because he was doing so in non-conventional ways and, and even doing so outside of the religious establishment, the religious leaders, the, the gatekeepers, if you will, they are getting concerned. And so they send a delegation or a, a deputation to John in order to talk with him so they can find out who exactly is this guy and why is he doing what it is he's doing. And so again, we see here in verse 19 that this deputation just comes out and they ask him, who are you? Now, the way John answers in this next verse is interesting, but it's also a little bit weird. He says in verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I don't know what you think about that sentence, but it's kind of weird, right? 
I mean, first off, why is he even saying, I'm not the Christ? That's, that's not what they asked him. They simply asked him, who are you? And then secondly, why is this sentence worded the way that it is? In other words, why doesn't it just simply state that John confessed, I am not the Christ? Like, why is, there's all this, why is there all this added language? Like, he confessed, he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. You see, I think the reason for this is because when the religious leaders asked him, who are you? John knew exactly what it was they were thinking and asking. In other words, he knew they were wondering, is this in fact the Christ who was to come, that long-awaited Messiah, that, that promised future king of Israel? And so in order to avoid any confusion or misunderstanding, we see here that John goes out of his way to emphatically deny that he was the Messiah. You see, all the commentators agree, verse 20 is unusually strong and emphatic. In fact, one commentator wrote this, the language is reminiscent of Christian vocabulary concerning confessing and denying Christ. But here it is used by John to confess that he was not the Messiah and to deny any suggestions that he was. So in terms of John's view of himself, he, what we see here is that he realizes and he confesses very clearly and upfront that he is not the Messiah. However, though, they're not done questioning him yet. Look at verse 21. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Okay, so depending on your familiarity with the Old Testament, this may sound like a really odd question. How could John be Elijah? Elijah lived hundreds and hundreds of years before this. However, though, when you turn to the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and specifically when you look at the last paragraph of the last chapter of Malachi, here's what you'll read. Starting in verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now at this point in the story of the Old Testament, Elijah, as I just mentioned, is long gone. Hundreds of years before this was written, he was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire, and yet here is God saying through the prophet Malachi, I am going to send to you Elijah. And so because of this prophetic word that was given, in Jesus' day, the people were looking out for Elijah, and they were expecting him to show up. And so actually, it's not that weird of a question. And not only that, but we're told in the other Gospels that both John's choice of clothing and his dietary preferences matched up pretty closely to Elijah himself. I mean, it would uh, it'd be kind of like seeing an old man with a long white beard wearing a red velvet suit and a red hat drinking milk or eating milk and drinking cookies and be like, so what's going on here? Are you Santa or something? Like, what's, what's this, right? John's ticking off some boxes here. And so again, the religious leaders asked John, are you Elijah? And he replies by saying, I am not. Now look, the fact that John denies being Elijah here does proved to be a little tricky and problematic for us. Because later on in the Gospels, Jesus will very explicitly say that John was the Elijah who was to come. In fact, not only that, but when John's birth is being announced uh, to his father, Zechariah, by the angel Gabriel, Gabriel uh, tells him this 
He says, and John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Now, we can't get too deep into this rabbit hole because it is a rabbit hole, but uh, there's lots of different thoughts and disagreements on this. A lot of people think that there's sort of two versions of this and, and Elijah will come later on in the end times. But, but for at least this part here, I agree with New Testament scholar D.A. Carson when he writes this. The Synoptic Gospels report that Jesus, identi uh, that Jesus identified John the Baptist with the promised Elijah. But they never suggest that the Baptist himself made the connection. Here, he refuses to make it, a refusal which, when placed alongside or beside the synoptic evidence, suggests that he did not detect as much significance in his own ministry as Jesus did. Now, to be clear, the Bible doesn't teach things like reincarnation. In other words, John the Baptist was like Elijah, but he was not the historical figure Elijah reincarnate with a different name. And yet, like Elijah, John did in fact move in power. He did play a very significant role in the history of redemption. But it appears, based on what happens here, that he seems to miss out or, or even misunderstand his own significance. And so from here, the religious leaders move on and they throw one more name or one more title at him and they say, well, then are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now, as you can tell, it appears John is getting pretty frustrated because his answers are getting shorter and more curt. At the beginning of the inquiry, he's like, I'm not the Christ. And then with the Elijah question, he says, I am not. And now here with the prophet, he's just like, no, no, guys, stop. I'm ready for this interview to be over. Now, like with the Elijah question, uh, this question around, are you the prophet, it, it too requires a, a pretty deep understanding and knowledge of the Old Testament in order to know why it is they're asking this. You see, in Deuteronomy 18, which are some of the last words of Moses before he dies, in verse 18 of that chapter, Moses prophesies on behalf of Yahweh, and here's what he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So again, what we see here is that uh, much like the Elijah figure who was to come, the people of Jesus' day were also looking for a prophet-like figure uh, who was like Moses. Now, in case you're curious, according to Peter in Acts 3, Jesus himself was the prophet who was foretold of in Deuteronomy 18. And so uh, with this one and the Messiah one, John the Baptist gets it right. He is not the prophet, nor is he the Messiah. And so what happens next in our story is that this, this deputation starts to get a little stressed, uh, I think. Right? Like they've been talking to John for a while, and so far he hasn't really given them anything that they can take back to their superiors. And so in verse 22, they say to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? I mean, can you hear just the sense of desperation in their voices? They're like, come on, dude, please work with us, right? Like, like we got to go back to our bosses who sent us, and, and they're going to want to know what it is that you told us. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? And so finally, in verse 23, 
John gives them a little bit of something, and he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Okay, so what we see here is that John quotes from Isaiah 40, which is a very famous and well-known passage in the Old Testament. And in that chapter, God promises that he's going to come to his people. He's going to come and rescue them and shepherd them. But before he comes, before that happens, there is some preparation work that must take place first. You see, the, the, the bigger passage around what John quotes here, starting in verse 3 in Isaiah 40, says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. That's prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. In commenting on this passage, Old Testament scholar Alec Motir writes this. It combines the ancient picture of the Lord coming to his people's aid with the practice of constructing processional ways for visiting dignitaries. The Lord's road is to be straight, level and free of obstacle, i.e., he will arrive without fail, travel without difficulty, and be undelayed by hindrances. You see, when we look at this Isaiah passage and when we look at John's life and his calling, what we see is that John's main role was to prepare the people of Israel for their Messiah. And the main way that he did that was by baptizing them and calling them to repent and by pointing to Jesus and saying, he is the one, he is the Messiah, he is the one who was promised to come. You see, if we go back to our original question of how does John view himself, I think it's interesting and even telling that John denies being any of these well-known people or titles and instead he just says, I'm a voice. No, I'm not the Messiah. No, I'm not the prophet. No, I'm not even Elijah. I'm just a voice. You see, I mentioned earlier that John didn't recognize his own significance when asked if he was Elijah. And I mentioned that Jesus very explicitly says later in the Gospels that he was. For example, in Matthew 11, when Jesus is talking to the crowds about John, he says this. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. Truly, I say to you that among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. You see, again, somehow John got himself wrong. He knew that he had a role to play, as we just saw when he quotes Isaiah 40 and saying that he is a voice in the wilderness. But according to Jesus, not only was John uh, the Elijah who was to come, but he was also the greatest human being ever to be born. And so how did John miss that? How did he misunderstand his own greatness? 
Well, as uh, Pastor Tim Keller points out that they're, in talking about this, he says there's only two reasons why someone might miss out or misunderstand their own significance or greatness. The first reason why someone might miss out or misunderstand their significance is because they are too self-focused. They're too self-absorbed. This is the kind of person who is so introspective that all they can see is every tiny flaw or mistake that they make. In other words, this kind of person is a hyper-perfectionist. And at a surface level, someone like this may uh, appear uh, really self-aware and, and really humble. But actually, when you look beneath the surface, what you find out is that it's really just a form of pride. And so that would be one reason as to why someone might miss out or misunderstand their own significance or importance. However, though, another reason is not that they're too self-focused on themselves, but rather because they are focused on another. You see, if your gaze and your attention is solely on another, then you are not worried about your own significance or greatness. And so with John, which is it? Is he a self-absorbed perfectionist? Or is he focused on someone else? Well, I think we'll figure it out here as we go to our next question, which is, what was John's view of Jesus? Well, there's so much that we could say here, and if I'm not careful, I could end up stealing Chris's message for Christmas Eve next week. But let me just point out a couple of things. Look here again in verse 25. They asked him, then, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, he said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. You see, again, this, this deputation is trying to figure out who John is and why he is doing what he's doing. And after being told by John that he's not any of the people that they have suggested, they finally respond by saying, well, then why are you baptizing? And in some ways, when you see John's answer here, you see that he basically ignores their question. He's like, look, I, I baptize with water, but actually among you is one that you guys don't even recognize. You don't even know, but his strap, the, the sandal on this one, I'm not even worthy to untie Again, as Keller points out, this is an astonishing statement because in every culture, there are some actions that are thought to be so low, so disgusting, so demeaning that you really, uh, that you shouldn't have to do them. I mean, for example, it kind of reminds me of uh, one of my first paying jobs when I was in the sixth grade. Uh, my best friend Cody had got a dog walking job after school. And because we were best friends and hung out a lot, I had nothing better to do. And at some point, I started to go with him. And before long, he had somehow convinced me that he would give me a very small portion of what he was earning if I was the one who would pick up the dog poop and carry it around. <laughs> now, by all accounts, this was a completely unfair deal. I mean, yes, he found the job. Yes, this was his connection. However, though... Picking up the poop and carrying it around is the worst part of dog walking, right? I mean, anyone can just like carry a leash and go on a pleasant walk with a dog. It's, it's the picking up the poop that, that, that stinks, both literally and figuratively, right? And so that was my job, and yet I was getting like a tenth of what he was making. 
Now, I should have known then that this uh, friend of mine had some entrepreneurial skills because uh, by the time we got to high school, he had started his own landscape company and was making all kinds of money. And so clearly he knew how to make money, and yet here I am just swinging a dog poop bag for 50 cents or a dollar or whatever it was. Now again, every culture has those jobs that are just gross, that are demeaning. And in their culture, it wasn't necessarily picking up dog poop, but instead it was removing someone else's dirty, stinky sandals that probably had some poop on them as well. In fact, there were even certain laws around who you could or couldn't make do this disgusting task. In other words, no one of social status did this, only the lowest of the low servant. However, though, with that in mind, do you catch the significance of what John is saying here? Do you see how radical it is? I mean, with that knowledge in mind, we might expect John to say something like, look, fellas, this coming Messiah, he's so great, he's so wonderful, that I'm only worthy to untie his sandals. Like a servant or a slave, I am only worthy to touch this one's sandals and untie them. But that's not what he says. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. See, the point is, is that John had such a high view of Jesus. He had such an exalted view of who the Messiah was that even the most demeaning and disgusting of tasks were too high and too lofty for him. Now, in saying this, we might worry that John is displaying to us uh, some low self-esteem or maybe no self-esteem, but I don't think that's what's going on here. No, rather, what I think Jesus is do or what John is doing is he's simply saying, in comparison to the one I am preparing the way for, I am nothing. I am unworthy. You see, earlier in John uh, chapter 1, verse 15, it says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, that's a pretty astonishing verse because what that shows us is that John recognized that Jesus was more than just a man, that he somehow was preexistent and eternal in his nature. And because of all of this, I think what we see is that John, he was so focused on Christ. His attention was so solely focused on Jesus that he, that he understood Jesus' greatnesses and Jesus' significance and that his own paled in comparison. I mean, by way of analogy, how many of you have ever heard of Balls Falls? Now, I know that's a weird name and it looks like no one has ever heard of it. But it's a beautiful waterfall in Ontario, Canada. I think we have a picture of it here. It's beautiful, right? The, the drop here is around 88 feet. Um, here's another picture of it where the river is a little fuller. And so you can tell this is, a, this is a pretty powerful waterfall when the river is up. Now, the thing about Balls Falls that makes it interesting is that it's about 20 miles or so from another waterfall, which I think we also have a picture of here. Um, <laughs> That's not a bad one, right? Uh, that's Niagara Falls. Uh, its drop is over twice as high as Balls Falls, and the amount of water that it sends over is not even worth trying to compare. You see, when it comes to waterfalls, on its own right, Balls Falls is pretty cool. It's a pretty beautiful place. But when you compare it to the Niagara Falls, it, is, it almost is like a joke. 
And if you're going to drive from Columbus, Ohio, six or seven hours to go see a waterfall, and you can only pick one, you're probably not going to Balls Falls, right? <laughs> and in the same way, it appears that John understands who he is in relation to who Jesus is. And because of that, he simply says, look, guys, I'm not that special. There's another one coming that I am unworthy to untie his sandals. And so in light of this, let's go to that third question, which is how did these views impact or inform John's life? In other words, how does John knowing who he is and who Jesus is change him or impact the way, of, uh, the way that he does life? Well, perhaps we've already started to answer this by seeing just how humble John was as it relates to his own significance and stature. You see, again, when you look at John's life, what you see is that there was zero sense of competition or rivalry in John's heart towards Jesus. Again, he understands who he is, and he understands very clearly who Jesus is. His role is to point to Jesus and to celebrate Jesus, not point to himself. In fact, later on in the Gospel of John, we see this displayed very clearly when John is talking to some of his disciples. And in John chapter 3, starting in verse 25, we read this. Now a discussion arose among some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so certainly John's view of himself and John's view of Jesus produced a humility in his life. But that's not the only thing that I think it did. You see, as I was uh, looking at this passage this week, one of the thoughts that ran through my mind was that John must have felt some pretty intense uh, pressure and anxiety from having these religious leaders question him. I mean, I don't know if you've ever watched a congressional hearing uh, perhaps you watched one recently. There were some interesting ones lately. But, but all I know is that if I was in that position, if I was sitting before the main lawmakers of our day and they were grilling me with questions about who I was and what I was doing, regardless of whether or not I had done something wrong, I'm pretty sure I would feel intimidated and anxious in that situation. I mean, maybe I'm just a wuss. I mean, even last year when I was coming back from a mission trip in Nicaragua and we got to the uh, customs the U.S. Customs, and the guy was grilling me. I was just like, he's like, why were you there? What were you doing? And are you sure? Is that all you did? And I was like, ah, please don't hurt me. I don't want to go back to one of those rooms you take people, you know? <laughs> and so certainly if I'm, you know, before a congressional hearing, I would be intimidated. And yet, here is John, essentially in that same exact position with the political and religious leaders of his day, sending a group of people to him to investigate and to inquire. And they're drilling him with question after question about his identity and about his conduct. And yet, as we've just seen, John is not only extremely calm under pressure, but he's also extremely bold. 
You see, when you're being questioned by those who are in authority over you or who have the power to harm you, one of the temptations or pressures you feel is to answer their question based on what it is you think they want to hear, right? And yet, John refuses to do that. See, I think John was so completely confident in his own identity and his own calling, and not only that, but he was also confident in who Jesus was, that he was able to resist the temptation to people, please. He was able to resist being bullied or pressured by those in authority to be or to do something God had not called him to be or to do. As Alistair Begg said it in one of his sermons on this passage, John cared very little of what people thought of him, and so he was prepared for personal obliteration in the task of powerful proclamation. Because John knew who he was, and because John knew who Jesus was, he was free to be bold, he was free to be a bold and courageous witness for Christ. He didn't need the religious leaders' approval. He wasn't scared of them. When they questioned him on why he was baptizing, he didn't flinch. Now, to be fair, if you follow John's life through the Gospels, there, there, he, he was still human. He does, in fact, waver a little bit at one point in his life. But in general, John remained true to his calling, and he remained bold and courageous throughout his life, even at the cost of his life. In other words, understanding his calling and identity and understanding who Jesus was changed him. It empowered him. It emboldened him. And so to close here, let's go to that last question we want to look at this morning, and that is this. What can we take from all of this? Well, as we think about the life and ministry of John the Baptist, there is no doubt that he had a very unique and specific calling from the Lord. I mean, for example, you and I can't point to uh, an Old Testament passage and say, hey, guess what, everybody? That, that, that verse right there, that's talking about me, right? Like, we can't do that. Not only that, but we also were not given the responsibility to prepare Israel for her coming Messiah. Again, that was very specifically John's role. However, though, while we may not have been given John's specific calling as it relates to Jesus' first coming, we do have a very similar calling and role as it relates to his second coming. You see, John was called to be a witness and to give testimony about who Jesus was and what he came to do. And in the same way, you and I are called to be uh, witnesses, and we are called to give a testimony about who Jesus is and what he has already accomplished. John was to tell the people about Jesus and to prepare them for his first coming. And we are to tell people about Jesus and therefore prepare them for his second coming. See, I don't, a lot of people don't realize this, but the season of Advent actually has a dual meaning and a dual purpose. And that is, firstly, to prepare for and to celebrate Jesus' birth and his first coming. But it's also, it has to do with preparing and looking forward to his second coming. And the thing is, is that part of that preparing for his second coming is us being witnesses and telling others about him. In fact, some of uh, Jesus' last words before he ascended into heaven were captured in Acts 1.8, which say, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses 
and Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, earlier I quoted a verse about Jesus talking uh, about John the Baptist, but I only quoted half the verse. He says, you know, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John. However, though, if you keep reading that verse, Jesus goes on to say, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You see, yes, John was special. Yes, John was great. And yes, John had a very important task and role. But according to Jesus, those of us who know him, those of us who belong to his kingdom, we are greater than John. And the reason that we're greater is because of who is inside of us, the Holy Spirit, and it's because our message is greater than the one that John had. You see, John only had part of the story. He knew that the Messiah was coming. And as we'll see next week, he also knew that somehow this Messiah would take away the sins of the world, but he didn't know exactly how. Whereas you and I now, we know about the cross, and more importantly, we know about the resurrection, and therefore, our message is greater than that of John's. And so in light of that, I know for most of us, this next week will be uh, filled with wrapping gifts and making cookies and all of that. But I also wonder, maybe there'll be some opportunities for you and I to bear witness to others about Jesus this Christmas season. Maybe it's something very simple like participating in our door hanger outreach. Or maybe it's handing out uh, one of our Christmas tracks or our invite cards to the Christmas Eve service. Or maybe it's more involved like going Christmas caroling in a neighborhood or at a nursing home. Or maybe it's just simply trying to, to initiate and to have an intentional Jesus conversation with one of your family members or coworkers this Christmas season. I don't know for sure what it might look like for you, but I do know that like John the Baptist, you and I have been called to bear witness to Jesus. And the more we understand that calling and that role, and the more we get our eyes off of ourselves and onto Jesus, the bolder you and I will become in our witness. You know, earlier this week, I went on a run, and as I was running, I was thinking, you know what? I used to be really good at this. Like, like, like back in the day, running was not that hard for me. I, I ran long distance track, I ran cross country. Uh, for even a, a little while until it was broken, I was a part of a team that held our school's record for the four by eight. However, though, this week as I was running, I was only like a mile into it and I was ready to quit and to give up. And it was kind of a, a discouraging because it was like, shoot, what happened? I, I used to do this really well. I don't understand. Now, right after having this thought while I was running, I went on to think about my sermon. And immediately I had the thought, you know what? When I first became a Christian at age 19, I used to be pretty good at talking to non-Christians about Jesus. Now, maybe I didn't have as much knowledge back then or as much theology, but I did have zeal and I had boldness. Now, I don't know if you can relate to that or maybe it's just me and maybe as I've gotten uh, older and have aged and, and maybe as our culture has shifted the way that it has, I've become less bold. But this is where I'm at. And I guess with both of those things, running and evangelism, I could just give up and decide, you know what, I'm not gonna do those things anymore. They're too hard. Or I could continue to press on even though they're harder than they used to be. 
And so look, if you're here today and you're a little bit like me, maybe you're a little rusty, or maybe your evangelism skills are a little out of shape, I just want to challenge you and I want to challenge me to take a risk this Christmas season and to step out and to be bold like John the Baptist and simply point others to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this privilege and for this calling that you've placed on each one of us, Lord. Regardless of spiritual gifts, regardless of personality, whether we're introverted or extroverted, Lord, it doesn't matter. You have given all of us this call and this role to point to Jesus. He is worthy. He is worth being embarrassed for. He is worth being laughed at. He is worth being rejected. Father, you said in Acts 1-8 that, that when the Holy Spirit came upon us, you would help us to, you would give us the power. We would receive power to be your witnesses. Father, I don't know about my friends, but I'll just say for myself, Lord, I need more power. Lord, I have allowed... I maybe have my eyes too much on myself and not on you. And so, Lord, would you empower us as a community to point to your son, Jesus, to say that he is the one, that he is significant, that he has the power to take away the sins of the world, that he's the lamb of God, that he's the son of God. So, Father, this Christmas season, Lord, whether it's around a dinner table, whether it's around a Christmas party or in our neighborhood, would you help us to be those bold witnesses? Would you empower us in Jesus' name and for his glory? Amen.